Well, welcome to MO Forum and a very special welcome to Professor Hugh White of the Australian National University. Hugh, could you explain why you got into this uh, whole area of strategic relations uh, within our region and beyond? Well, it's a slightly embarrassing answer, actually. It's because my dad was in the business. Ah. Uh, he was a senior defence official and I grew up with him talking about this sort of stuff. And I'm ashamed to say it never crossed my mind that I want to do anything else with my life other than this. I think for me it was actually what I think, you know, people in the church call a vocation. Ah. I just never thought I wanted to do anything other than Well, my kids have decided uh, one thing they're not going to do. (laughs) (laughs) Which is what I did. Out of vocation. Yeah, no, for me it really just went very deep. I had a very irregular uh, early academic career and, you know, chopped and changed and mucked about. But I always thought that at the end I wanted to this end up working in government, working in the foreign affairs and defence area. Um, and uh, that was just because I had this very deep sense of how sort of inherently interesting it was. And then there was still two other influences. Uh, when I was a sort of a school kid, I came across in the library a short book on the origins of the First World War. I can still picture it. Yeah. It was just a little sort of, you know, almost a pamphlet. I remember reading this, and, you know, Austria uh, delivers an ultimatum to Serbia. Russia mobilizes to support Austria. Russia then mobilizes against Germany. Germany mobilizes against Russia. This was the mm. most interesting mm. thing I'd ever yeah, read. Right. I couldn't yeah. believe it. And then the second sort of sp- the spark was a couple of years later in my final year at school, I did an 18th century history subject and a wonderful teacher in the first class of the year explained the origins of the war of the Spanish succession. I won't go through it, but it was the most, I remember just thinking, ah, that's just so interesting. Mm. Uh, same sort of thing. So this yeah, is about yeah. how states relate to one another, the role of armed force in their relationship, what you need to do to preserve a stable order. It sounds sort of corny, but I've always just thought it was the most interesting thing going. Right. And, plus, and I, plus I'm sort of interested in machinery as well. So there's big that tanks and things yeah, like well, that. Yeah, well, actually, that's prefer easily. Yeah, no, but, but I've always been interested in the kind of engineering. I don't mean engineering necessarily in a detailed sense, but in, in the end, uh, you know, politics is all about human relations and psychology and all of that, ultimately. Whereas armed force is very physical. Yeah. You know, it's all about it's what you can actually do. Uh, you know, the machines, the systems, the people, how you yeah. can get them into Not places. very subtle. It's not very subtle. And so the interconnection between the sort of mental world of politics and the very I physical see, yeah. world of armed force and how they relate with one another has always seemed to me to be extraordinarily interesting. So, you know, And, and um, the ultimate goal of this, obviously people um, get their motivation yeah. by a particular... Result or outcome they want yeah. to see through this. Were you trying to work out ways that countries could go to war against each other, or ways of avoiding uh, uh, countries going it, it, to war against each other? Well, it, it it always seemed to me that you know there are two really big questions you've got to ask yourself. Uh, the first is what are the circumstances under which you do think it's correct to go to war, and how do you make sure if you do you win? And the second is, how can you make sure that those circumstances don't arise? Yeah. And they are, to me, two sides of the same coin. Yeah. Um, you know, I am... Not for everyone. I mean, no, no, not for everyone. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, in, I'm nobody's idea of a pacifist. I do think there are circumstances in which going to war is the right thing to do. 
but I am very conservative about the circumstances under which you should go to war. And I, I'm usually, particularly in the last couple of decades, have been on the side of those who said, let's not do this. I, I think armed force is actually a very specialised policy instrument, which is good for very few things. Yeah. And the idea you can use armed force to do all sorts of other things, like, say, reconstruct the internal politics of Iraq or yeah, Afghanistan, yeah, yeah, to take yeah. two examples, not at random. I think I've always thought they were dumb ideas. Well, just a quick question. Um, did you support the war in Iraq? Sounds like the answer to that no, is no. I, I, al I always argued against the war in Iraq. Um, I, uh, and I argued against it on very straightforward grounds. That is, it seemed to me that it was going to be very easy to remove Saddam Hussein and very hard to replace him. Mm. And that the US and its partners, even if it had managed to build a much bigger coalition than it did, simply would not have the military resources to control Iraq after the removal of the of the existing regime. And even if it had those military resources, which it didn't, it wouldn't have then had, so to speak, the political resources yeah. to rebuild uh, Iraq's political culture yeah. because, you know, these things are impossible to impose. Yes. Um, so I always argued against that. I, I, I supported the initial uh, in, in intervention in Afghanistan after 9-11 because it did seem to me to be a legitimate thing to do. And Al-Qaeda was operating. When Al-Qaeda was there. Um, uh, I argued very consistently against the subsequent phase that really ar arose almost sort of spontaneously um, in uh, 2002 and 2003 and then got much bigger after 2005 of uh, of the the, the large-scale intervention to try and reconstruct Afghanistan. Mm. It, all, it always seemed to me to be, uh, well, destined to fail, mm. and um, and it has. Um, uh, and I think, that's, I think that's a major failure of strategic policy on the West's part to yeah. allow itself to get yeah. into that sort of situation. But we wouldn't be having this argument about um, Australia's engagement in the Second World War or, or well, the American no, involvement and so on. No, 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 that's exactly right. Uh, you know, that was We're a, under that, attack. That, 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 that was a war you had to fight. Yeah. Um, uh, there are things one could have done to prevent it. And that's why I say there are two sides of yeah. the coin. Do whatever you can to prevent it. Right. Then do what it means. Then do whatever you can to win it. Yeah. Um, also, there's a sort of a third element to it. And that is that, you know, leaving aside the actual occasions where you go to war, States spend a lot of money on defence, mm. um, uh, a, a politically significant amount of money. Uh, you know, $1,000 for every man, woman and child on the continent. In Here in Australia. Even yeah. now, when our defence spending is really too little. Yeah. And it's, well, it depends what you want to do. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but uh, it's certainly too little to do what the government claims it wants to do. Mm. Um, but that's a lot of money. And so it's always seemed to me extremely interesting to explore how you decide what kind of armed forces a country needs and how much money to spend on them. And, of course, that involves deciding first and foremost what you want to do with them. And that's, it's, a, it's, it's a classic, you know, one level is a classic policy process like any other area of public policy. What are you trying to achieve? What are the alternatives? How yeah. much is it going to cost? Are we prepared to spend that kind of money to get that kind of outcome? But it's done in very demanding circumstances. You never know the circumstances under which you might do it. You can't run tests of your policy. Mm. It's not like mm. a pilot program. You've yeah. got a new policy for You homeless. guys attack and then we'll... Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's not like, you know, you've got a new policy for homeless kids. So yeah. you say, okay, let's run a pilot program yeah, yeah. in Rockhampton. Yeah. No, you can't. Let's run a pilot program of how we might sink another country's submarines. Mm. You know, it looks bad. Um, so, <laughs> so it's a very intellectually demanding, quite pure intellectual demanding task to work out how governments can make sensible, mm -hmm. contestable, evidence-based yeah. decisions on the sorts of armed forces they need. 
particularly when people start thinking about armed forces, they don't really think of them just or even primarily as an instrument of policy. They think of them primarily as a national symbol. Yeah, so they get rem- right. And all sides of politics do this. They get remarkably sentimental about them. And they spend billions and billions of dollars on stuff you don't need because they like the look of it. Mm. In any other area of public policy, this would be a national scandal. Yeah, yeah. But in defence, it's... You know, the biggest and the newest? Exactly. Is that, is that, that, that sense? Well, well and, and it's that, but also, you know, stuff that makes us feel good. Mm. You know, it makes us feel good about ourselves. And I think in the end, you've got to take a very cold, instrumental view of armed force. It's a policy instrument. You need it to do some things. You want to work out exactly what it is you want it to do, and you've got to build the forces, which most cost-effectively deliver that. And wars have a nasty habit of not going according to script. So they invariably have don't. Um, you know, all of this um, game plan exactly. or war plan exactly. and have the equipment yeah. ready yeah. for that circumstance, yeah. and it completely a different that's circumstance it. arises, and you find right. that you... Don't need the submarines, yeah. but you could have done yeah. with a lot more aircraft. No, it? that's right. Well, AJP Taylor says that uh, said it in the book about the beginning of the Second World War that that um, uh, everybody um, uh, plans for the wrong war and victory goes <laughs> for the country that plans least well, badly. Well, it adapts to the to, to, oh, to, to, what to what's actually best. happening. Um, but, but, I mean, having said that, I, I do think you can do defence policy well. Mm. I don't think Australia's done it well for a long time, but I think you can do it well. I think you can make rational, contestable, uh, evidence-based policy decisions about the kinds of capabilities which are most likely to serve your most important interests. Yeah. Um, but most countries don't do it. And we don't do it. Most other countries don't do it. Sometimes you see a country that does do it well, Singapore, for example, and you think, hmm, wish we could do that. So I do want to get on to some of the regional yes. issues, but yeah. before we do, uh, can you just amplify on the point that you said we haven't done it well? What what have we done in defence policy that um, you know should yeah, have okay. been done? Uh, the approach Australia's taken to defence since we came back from Vietnam in the early nineteen seventies has been absolutely framed by the biggest fact in Australia's international setting in those decades, and that is that America's primacy in Asia has been uncontested. Not just that America has been the dominant power in Asia, but its dominance since 1972, since Nixon went to China, has not been contested by Mm -hmm. any other Asian great power. And this is so much part of the world we've lived in, we completely take it for granted. Um, And it's very strongly influenced our defence policy, because when we were a very close ally of a dominant power in the region, whose primacy is uncontested, that puts a very low ceiling, both on what we have to do to support our ally, mm. we've done nothing to support America practically, in you know, real hard military terms, in Asia since 1972, since we came back from Vietnam. It puts a very low ceiling on that, and it puts a very low ceiling on what we have to do by ourselves, because there's a limit to how bad the region can go for us as long as our, our very close allies are dominant power. Now, my argument is that for a decade or more now, Australia should have been recognising that that is changing, that is, that US primacy in Asia is no longer uncontested, and that we are likely to be living in a region in which we either have to do much more to support an ally, mm-hmm. or much more by ourselves. Yeah. Maybe both. Um, and but that's I, expensive. It's extremely expensive, um, uh, but it's also very demanding. That is, you've got to ask, in that sort of circumstance, you've got to say, well, what is it precisely that we need to do to support our ally in a contested Asia? Yeah. 
And what exactly will we need to do by ourselves in a contested Asia? We have not asked those questions. Mm -hmm. And until you ask those questions, you can't then say, well, what's the most cost-effective way of achieving those objectives? What kind of capability, in terms of yeah. operational terms, yeah. what kind of operations do you need to undertake? What kind of capabilities do you need to buy to build those operations? How much are they going to cost and so on? Instead, what we've done is to spend a great deal of money on capabilities which simply have no strategic rationale. Uh, in particular, a very high proportion of our investment in the ADF since 2003 has gone on building the capacity to project land forces overseas in cases of major war. And this is something which makes no sense for Australia for two very simple reasons. The first is that Australia's land forces will never have a significant strategic impact in Asia. In any we just other. don't have enough. We're we just, we just not big enough. Mm. You know, we're just, we just not that kind of country. Yeah. Um, you, you know, a, a, a battalion, a brigade, even of a division of Australian soldiers in any major conflict in Asia mm. is delivered Tiny. with a, with you know, with a, with an eyedropper mm. uh, into a bonfire. Yeah. Just disappears. Has no effect at all. Uh, secondly, of course, they'd never get there because we're moving into an Asia in which countries will find it very easy to sink ships and very hard to keep their ships afloat. And we're on an island. Yeah, you know, yeah. They, <laughs> we, they will know we're coming. They'll know we're coming. Yeah. And, and so, you know, the, the investment in the air warfare destroyers and the big amphibious ships and the reshaping of the army as primarily an amphibious force is a huge waste of money. That, that, is, that is fundamentally misconceived piece of strategic planning. It started with the Howard government. They completely lost discipline in their force planning in 2003. Um, and that, that has rolled on. And so there's 15 billion bucks worth of, um, of investment there straight off the pin. That you'd say is wasted. Which I say is just wasted. Now, it's, we, we do need some amphibious capability. We don't need amphibious capability for major combat. Right. And so we don't need 27,000 tonne amphibious ships. We need 12,000 tonne amphibious right. ships. To do um, what? Stabilisation operations like the things we did in East Timor, the Solomon Islands, yeah. and potentially in Papua New Guinea, and so on. But those are operations in uncontested waters. Yeah, yeah. So Understood. you don't have to defend those ships yeah. against somebody else's submarines. Yeah. And they're and they're operations in which you're not trying to put forces ashore against opposition. Yeah. You need a big ship like that if you're going to try and land with, 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 with somebody else's army ashore yeah. trying to stop you. Yeah, but if you're going ashore in East Timor or the Solomon Islands. It's a, it's, it's a lodgment, not an assault, yeah, yeah. in military terms. That's the sort of way them. So you wouldn't be a big fan of any of the white papers since 2003? Uh, no. I mean, I'm, you know, you don't want to take my word for this because I was a principal author of the one in 2000, so I've got a dog in the fight. But, but, but I, I think the white papers since then have, come, have, first of all, failed to address the challenges of the emergence of a contested strategic environment in Asia, which is the strategic challenge Australia faces. And secondly have failed uh, to generate a rational force structure. Um, and so we're now in a situation, to be blunt, in which the, the defence funding projections can't, will not be able to support the capabilities we're, taught, we're, we're planning to buy. The capability we're planning to buy won't be able to deliver the operational objectives we've mm. set ourselves, and the operational objectives we've set ourselves are in, insufficient to achieve our strategic objectives. But apart from that, it's apart all from right. that, we're in great shape. <laughs> okay, so a lot of money um, expected to fund these things. The money's not there. No, the, 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 the money's not there, and if it was there, we're buying the wrong things. You're buying the wrong. Yeah. Things. So you know, and yeah, you can waste money in defence in a million different ways, but there's no worse way of wasting money than spending billions of dollars on stuff that's not going to work for yeah. you.
and and that is, and that is what we're doing at the moment. And of course, same time, we're not spending money that we do need to spend. I, you know, I I think Australia has a real challenge as to whether it's going to whether it can sustain the armed forces required to give it the military weight of a, of a middle power in the Asian century in a contested Asia. But I think we probably can do it, but only if we define what we need to do very narrowly and precisely, and build exactly the capabilities that most cost effectively mm-hmm. deliver those things we need to do. And to, to, for me, I mean, it's a long argument, but for me, the um, the heart of that is uh, a submarines. I, I would have a submarine force two or three times the size of, that uh, that anyone's now planning, but I'd also start building it now. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact is that we have uh, allowed ourselves to drift into a situation where the replacement of the old columns has been deferred and deferred and deferred. Yeah. Um, and we're going to find ourselves two or three decades from now with a vastly depleted submarine force. We should have a vastly expanded. And what do you do with submarines? I mean, what, what's their advantage for okay. Australia? The, the key operational role for Australia is the capacity to stop other people using the sea against us. Mm-hmm. Back to the fact we're an island. Yeah, uh, very important. So this is a and this, this is, is not a projection. This well, is that, a defence. No, well, it's it, it's 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 a strategic posture which is fundamentally defensive. Yeah, it's not to say it's strategically defensive. Not to say it's operationally defensive. Your strategic objective can be to defend your own territory. Yeah, you can do it by reaching out and touching the other bloke. Right. But the core thing that Australia needs to be able to do is sink other people's ships. This mm-hmm. sounds like an oversimplification. Mm-hmm. It's not. This stuff actually is much simpler than most people make it out to be. We need to be able to sink other people's ships. And With good reason, I hope. Oh, yes. No, no. Well, we, <laughs> under the right circumstances, you know, like I said, go back to the beginning. Yeah. You need to make sure you don't get yourself in that situation. Yeah. We'll probably get back, get back to that later. But once you find yourself in that situation, yeah. you want to make sure you can do it. Do what you... Well, you want to raise the costs and risks to an adversary to the point of, where they yeah, just yeah. say it's not worth it. We may not do that. Um, a middle power like Australia, we don't win wars. Mm. We avoid losing them. Yeah. That's the difference between a great power can win a war. Mm. You know, march its soldiers down the main street of its adversary, march across Tiananmen Square. We're never going to march yeah. across Tiananmen Square. Um, neither will America, by the way. Yeah. But we're, we're not, we're not, you don't win wars. What you do is avoid losing them. And I think the best way for Australia to avoid losing them is to be able to sink other people's ships. And although submarines are not the only thing to do that, I also think air power is very important. Submarines are by far and away the most cost-effective way to sink ships at long range from your own territory uh-huh. because they're so hard to find and sink themselves. Yeah. Um, and they have very long range and so on. So I'd, I'd, I'd build 24 or 36 submarines and do it fast. Well, the people of Adelaide would love you. <laughs> well, they, 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 they would. Um, and I actually, although I'm not... I'm a I'm very stringent about defence industry. I, you know, I, I'm not one of those who believes that everything has to be built in Australia. But as a matter of fact, I think because our submarines capability is, needs to be so big, it would actually be cost effective for us to build uh, to, to run a continual build probe. In fact, probably to meet my strategic plan, you probably need two yards building continuously. Right. Yeah. It's not that bad a model. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds ludicrously ambitious. Actually, if you have two yards more or less side by side building continuously, you can you can build submarines quite cheaply. And why not off the shelf? Uh, well, um, I, I would... It's a big shelf, by the way. Yeah, big shelf. Um, uh, I don't at all rule out the idea of buying, um, of buying off the shelf submarines. Um, and the, a point will come in the not too distant future where our submarine situation is so critical of the we only way that we, the, the only thing is going to be to go to Kiel or something to Germany to fill the gap, the hole to fill, to fill the gap, the retirement. And although there are disadvantages with European boats 
particularly because of their size and therefore their range and endurance, um, I think those disadvantages are not as great as uh, their critics sometimes say, because mm -hmm. most of their critics are motivated by a deep desire to build lots of stuff in Australia, in Australia. Um, sometimes not unconnected with yeah. uh, incentives. Um, uh, I think there are. Uh, I think that, that could be a necessary and practical step, but in the long term, it makes sense for Australia to have bigger submarines. We have a huge investment in the intellectual property of the columns. Mm. We know what's wrong with the columns. Yeah. Um, the far and away the most natural thing for us to do is to take the Collins design as a starting point and evolve that design, fix the problems. It's not, and it's basically, it, it remains a pretty good boat. Mm -hmm. There are some problems, you know, some of them are ridiculously fundamental, but they're, they're still solvable. So I think building on the intellectual property we've already got, starting to build an, an evolved version of the Collins, if it was me, I'd order six I'd start building six evolved columns right now at the same time as we're running the through life upgrades, the, the life of type extensions on the existing six columns. Then I'd do another evolution of that design and then start building that one really fast. But Well, I think that gives us a pretty yes. good um, <laughs> tour of uh, our defence posture and the sort of equipment and so on that would be needed. But I know that you have attracted the ire yes. of um, other... Um, self-professed learned commentators, yes, yes, some of them yes, are learned, yes. um, others maybe yes, less so, yes. for suggesting that um, we might be living not in a unipolar yeah. world, but, but you, yeah. know, in a, yeah. you know, in a different environment yes. than, than, say, uh, at the turn of the century. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that there's um, a trite question which is readily answered, which is, do we need to choose mm. between China yes. and yes. Yeah. And uh, the US, yeah. so of course we yeah. don't. But yeah. it, it, there's more to it than that. Oh yes, it? no, there's a lot more to it than that. Well, it's just, I mean, it's, it, going back to where you started, um, this is the other side of the question. I, I, you know, I'm extremely interested in the kind of armed forces Australia should have and the way we should use them. But in a sense, I'm even more interested in what Australia can and should do to help prevent mm. the, the evolution of a strategic situation in Asia in which we find ourselves. The other side of the coin. It's the other side of the coin. And, and you know, to ask yourself the, the circumstances, what are the conditions for peace and stability over the next, say, half century? Yeah. Bloody pacifist. Well, <laughs> the, 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 the trick is you ask yourself, well, why has the last 40 years been so peaceful? Mm. And, you know, my answer is, it's not a coincidence. The last 40 years have been peaceful, whereas the 20 years before that, for defence, Cold War, Korea, Vietnam, yeah. that, was a, that was a mess. The 20 years before that, 1930s, 1940s, yeah. that was a mess. Yeah. So why has the last 40 years been so peaceful when the 40 years before that was such a mess? I would say it's because American primacy has been uncontested. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, the, it's been uncontested because the Chinese, because the Japanese, after 1945, Disarmed put, put anyway. themselves in a box mm -hmm. and said, okay, we, we're not going to be a strategic player. Yeah. And the Chinese, after 1972, essentially did the same. They said, okay, we're going to accept America as a dominant power in Asia. Now, this has become so much part of our understanding of the region we live in, we take it for granted. But, of course, my big argument is that as power shifts, as China's economy grows, as its power grows on the back of its economy, it no longer accepts American primacy as a foundation for the Asian order. It wants a bigger share of the region. It contests American primacy again, and that's what's happening right now. This and what do, you, what do you mean by a bigger share of the region? Well, um, that's a very good question. What does China want? Mm. Let me answer that two ways. The first is, what does it want? You know, you're Xi Jinping, yeah. you're lying awake in the middle of the night. Ooh, what's the China dream? We, we don't know. 
of course, and they don't know, but we can take a guess because in the end, although China has a very special history and sense of itself and so on, they're not so different from the rest of us. What do they want? They want to be in charge. They want to lead. Lead with a capital L. I don't think their model of leading with a capital L is a Stalinist one, sort of like Stalin dominating Eastern Europe or Stalin wanting to dominate yeah. the world. I think it's more an American one, actually. My American friends smile when I say this. I, I think that the, the, the sort of deeply embedded Chinese model of its aspirations for leadership in Asia is, 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 a, is, is to do something very like what the Americans have done in the Western Hemisphere under the Monroe Doctrine. Mm -hmm. That is, you are clearly, unambiguously the leading power. But you don't enforce that leadership in a Stalinist way by occupying other people's countries and yeah. running their politics for them and dominating their economies. You just do it by the fact that you're the biggest and you're the sort of major economy and you've got a lot of sort of soft power and but also backed up by military power. But it's sort of semi-consensual or more, you know more or less okay. consensual. So I think what the Chinese would like to do would be to have that kind of soft hegemony. Have, is, is there any history of this? Because people who look at China say, well, they haven't had a habit of actually marching into other Well, countries. actually, it's, it's a, it, no, they, they, don't have a, they don't have a habit of invading other countries. That's quite right. They do, of course, have a very strong tradition of functioning as a soft hegemon. That's what the whole tributary system and sort of classic Chinese imperial tributary system was all about. You know, you can run your country, but every year you'll come... To, to China and kowtow before the emperor and show that you accept our primacy. Right. Um, but, but I think, you know, I also think we should need to be careful not to read too much into the historical metaphors for China. Either way, either the argument that China's a peace-loving country that's never misbehaved or a, a country that's always sought to impose yeah. a sort of, you know, tributary status, impose, impose hegemony on its neighbourhood. Because China, although there are many continuities has never before functioned as a, as a modern industrial state in a region of modern states. Yeah. Uh, this, is a, you know, this is essentially a you know, sort of post-1800 phenomenon, the emergence of modern states, but even say post-1850 phenomenon in Asia, the emergence of modern states in a modern state system. And so this is the first time China's functioned in a modern state system. And so it's still, it's still China in all sorts of ways that, you know, stretch right back into the sort of grand traditions of Chinese statecraft. But it's functioned in a completely different, different way. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I do tend to look as much to European models as to Asian models when you try to work out what's going on in Asia. Because the European state system is by far and away the best sort of bank of data we have yeah. about how modern states in the sort of Westphalian model um, work with one another in a complex multi-state system. And so although you don't want to sort of take Europe and apply it, yeah. and as a matter of fact, uh, you know, um, without wanting to overstate this, if you actually look at the way in which Asia has evolved over the last century, um, the European models provide pretty good pretty good prediction, a basis for prediction. And so I think China, it's sensible for us to expect China to behave in ways which mirror in quite closely the ways in which states in the European state system as they've risen to power. But they've had two brutal and wars. Well, three, if you include the Napoleonic War, yeah. or it depends how far back you want to go. I mean, you know, you could say that, say that um, you know, the, 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 the wars to contain Louis XIV's bid for primacy in, in, uh, in Asia at the, at the end of the 17th century and beginning of the 18th century were very much 
hegemonic wars in a modern state system. Mm. So, in fact, the Europeans have had a lot of wars, but they've had two doozies. Mm. That is, two since the in impact of the Industrial Revolution on the nature of armed force well and truly came to the fore. And, of course, a lot of people argue um, that that's all happened in Europe, in, in Asia. That is, that it's the sort of a law of nature says that as a power like China rises to challenge an existing leading power like the United States, conflict between them is inevitable. I, I, I just don't think that's right because in the end, the, 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 the actions and reactions of states are not mediated by the laws of physics, they're mediated by the choices that individuals make. That's right. And, and, and so individuals can choose to avoid yeah, that if yeah. they want to. And there are be far better communications too. Um, I don't know how important that is. but I'm not so sure that the communications... I mean, the communications are quicker. Yeah. I'm not quite sure the communications are any better. You know, the United States and China, for example, have endless ways of communicating with one another. But it still remains the case, in my view, that the United States fundamentally misunderstands China's right. objectives. But extremely sophisticated Chinese who speak Americans who speak Chinese perfectly well and have been studying China all their lives still believe that China is going to accept American primacy as a foundation for the Asian order, even as China's economy overtakes America's. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I find that yeah. I'm sure it's wrong. Yeah. I'm, sh I'm as sure as I've ever been of anything uh, in my professional life. My point right, about communications was in, um, the Cuban Missile Crisis yes, yeah, was yeah. solved yeah. ultimately by, I think, um, two people who knew each other. And yes. there was a, a, yes. a kind of form yes. of communication yes. behind the scenes, yes. but it was so rudimentary yes. and in some no. senses lucky. Yeah. Yeah. But now at least... Um, you know, if you choose, yeah. if you choose, yeah. you can communicate but, and but, but, at least but, maximise the chances I, of averting a stuffer. I think, I think, but I think the um, I think the means of communication are less important than the than the approach that each of the parties takes, takes to the message to they're yeah. going to deliver. Yeah. And what really made the difference in the thirteen days in October was the fact that both Khrushchev and Kennedy clearly understood the risks that mm. were at stake and clearly understood that they could not assume the other guy would back down. Yeah. You know, the, the critical moment in the Cuban Missile Crisis from the American side is the point at which Kennedy, in one of those meetings in the Exco, says, but what if we, what if we attack the Cuban, the, the, the Soviet anti-aircraft site? It was the anti-aircraft yeah, missile yeah. sites that they wanted to take out. And he said, we'll kill some, some Soviets. Uh, what will they do? And Curtis LeMay says... They won't do anything. No, no. They won't do anything. Mm. And Casey, yes, they will. Mm. I can promise you they will. They'll, they'll, they'll mobilise against West Berlin. And what will we do then? We'll, and and he, 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 he describes, in a sense, yeah. the escalation up, yeah, yeah. You know, up the ladder to a nuclear yeah. exchange. Now, what made a difference was he understood where that might lead. And so evidently did Khrushchev. When Khrushchev wrote the letter about, you know, we're pulling tighter on the knot of war, what he was saying was, you know, he understood mm. that he could not assume the Americans would back down. The Americans understood. Yeah. So they both understood what was at stake. Um, and that that meant that both of them were prepared. Well, they were looking for a communication they were, they were looking, channel. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and, 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 and once you decide you really want to communicate, yeah. not that hard you to find do a way to communicate. Yeah. Yeah. But, the, but, but the risk in the US-China relationship is that they that they don't have that. They, you know, they, both sides believe the other will back down. Mm -hmm. Both sides underestimate the risk of, of rivalry and conflict. 
Um, both are prepared, to my mind, to take um, very unwise risks. Um, and so, I, you know, I think the US-China relationship is in a poison, a much more dangerous place than most other people do. I think this is immensely significant for Australia. Um, Australia can't work. We can't have the future we want if the US-China relationship doesn't remain stable. And not just that it does not go to war, but it doesn't become too adversarial. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to the point, do we have to choose? We don't want to choose, but whether we have to choose will depend on the way the US-China relationship evolves. Mm. And if anyone thinks that the United States-China relationship might not very probably evolve in a way that requires us to choose, they're kidding themselves. In fact, I think we were already starting to make choices, not a big choice, either go with America or go with China, but the little choices, oh, will we do this or we do that? Oh, what's the other thing going to think? I mean, we're already at the point where, not in the economic sphere, but in the political and strategic sphere, what Australia does is of interest to each of those countries primarily as it re relates to their strategic rivalry with the other. What America looks to Australia to do is how we're aligning with America against China. What the Chinese look to us is how far are we swinging America's way, how far are we staying in the middle. So this is the key issue for both of them. So they judge their relationship with us in terms of what we're doing with the other. We're already making those choices all the time. It's just that we don't always realise. Yeah. And they won't always be easy choices to make. Oh, they are extremely... I mean, well, they, they, they are, in fact, in some ways, the most difficult diplomatic and strategic choices we've ever faced. Because, you know, for us, supporting the dominant Anglo-Saxon maritime power in the Western Pacific has always been, since 1788, has always been, for us, the key to our security. Yeah. Um, and it's, but we've never faced a challenge to that as strong as China's challenge today. And, and so what, um, there is a catalyst and it might come and go, hopefully it goes, and that is, um, the dispute between China and, um, Japan, Japan, yeah, over disputed territory. The United States is uh, seeking to calm that down. What, yeah. What's your prognosis for all of that? Um, well, the first thing to understand about the Senkakus, Dio Islands, I'll call it Senkakus, um, is that it's not really about the islands at all. Mm -hmm. It is about primacy in Asia. Right. Um, and so it's not about the resources. It's not, it's not about it's not it's, 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 it's oil, oil reserves. It's, it, no, no, it's not, you know, oil you can buy. Yeah. You know, I, I, serious states don't undertake major conflicts over resources. Mm. You know, it's just it's just a, economically it's a dumb way of getting access to oil. You want to buy oil, you can go and buy oil yeah. on the open market for whatever the price is today. Um, so, no, I, I think um, what's driving the Senkakus is uh, China's desire to contest US primacy in Asia. And the logic, the strategic and political logic of it is very straightforward. Um, America's primacy in Asia depends on its relationship with Japan. The fact that it has the alliance with Japan is an absolutely essential constituent of America's position in the Western Pacific. America's relationship with Japan depends on Japanese confidence. The United States will always support them. Mm -hmm. As China puts pressure on Japan in circumstances where the Chinese believe the Americans will be reluctant to support Japan, they hope to undermine Japan's confidence in the U.S. alliance, under, uh, in, in the U.S. alliance, therefore undermine the alliance itself, therefore undermine America's position in the Western Pacific. That's why this is so serious. This is not about islands. It's about the deep strategic structure in Asia. And, of course, what's embedded in that is a Chinese expectation that the Americans will let Japan down. And they're, 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 I'm not sure they're right about that. They could easily be wrong, um, in which case we've got one kind of problem. 
if they are right, if America does let Japan down, then its position in the Western Pacific is undermined. Mm -hmm. we, we shouldn't for a moment presume that the United States will remain a strong player in Asia. It has choices to make. And in China, it confronts an Asian power which, is, power, which is stronger relative to the United States than any country has ever been since America since became America a real power. Became. I mean, you know, America became the biggest economy in the world in the 1880s. Uh, it very quickly took off like a rocket, particularly what the Europeans started doing to themselves. Uh, by 1900, it was by far and away the world's biggest economy. Yeah. China's economy today, Pick a number, but it's 75 PPP terms, 75% the size of America's. You can have a little judgment about how the two growth curves are going to go, but sometime in the next decade or two at the outside, China will overtake America and become the biggest economy in the world. That's not inevitable, but it's so far and away the most likely outcome that the other. Well, its growth rate is 7%. Well, say, plus say, say growth is 7 and the US is, is three, 3. But, you know, say China disappoints and gets 6 and America does better and gets 3.5. We're just yeah. talking about the time. Yeah, that's right. And this is just, yeah. you know, five so, years left or right. This, yeah. this is. It's not, not it something that's speculation. It's just when. Not and, of course, if. already, right now, China's economy is bigger relative to, to the United States than the Soviet Union's ever was during the Cold War. I didn't War. know that, yeah. The, the, Soviet Union, the Soviet economy was quite hard to manage, to measure. It's one yeah. of the reasons why it's not yeah. there anymore, yeah. you know, in yeah. sort of classic McKinseyan terms. Um, but, but the, you know, the smart people who, who study this thing reckon that the Soviet economy was never more than about half the size of America's. But did they put enormously disproportionate resources they, they, into they, their military. They, they did. They put mm. huge resources into their military, but in the end... They Which lost helped the, bankrupt them. Of course. In mm. the end, they lost the Cold War because they couldn't make that work. Yeah. Worth remembering that China is still spending much lower proportion mm. of its GDP mm. on defence than the United States is right. today, mm. let alone mm. than the Soviet Union did in the Cold War. But, and, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very sort of simple-minded about this. In the end, national power has lots of manifestations, but I think it only has one source, and that is the scale of your economy. Your economy, yeah. There's never been a rich country that wasn't powerful or a powerful country that wasn't rich. Yeah. And you also had the point, um, which I've used many times, and, and with attribution, of course, a little asterisk <laughs> at the bottom, that um, in the olden days, the countries with the biggest population, yeah, when right. technology, they rudimentary yeah, it was, yeah. was common yeah, across right. large... Yeah. Um, continents, yeah. the biggest biggest economy, populations had biggest the biggest economy. economy. That's right. And with the Industrial Revolution and that period where productivity um, went through the roof, went through yeah, the roof right. in the Western in countries, countries yeah. they could have a smaller economy, but um, yeah. sorry, a smaller Small population, population, but a very big, big economy, economy dominant right. economy. Yeah. But as countries such as China, Indonesia, and um, uh, India, India. Uh, catch yeah. up. That's right. With the possibilities that already exist yeah, because yeah. the technology exists, that's right. that's then right. they can grow at six, sevens, and eights, yes. and the United States and Australia can grow at threes. Threes and threes, that's right. And so yeah, right. it's just it's, it's a classic, the way it is. It's a classic thing. You know, the We're great, not going to grow at six, sevens, and eights. That's right. The US yeah. isn't going to grow that's at right. six, sevens, and eight. And, and so at one day, I think it's really yeah. interesting because you say, so if effectively technology is shared, we go back to where we that's were, right. you that's know, right. Exactly. A thousand years or more ago. Exactly. Well, less than a thousand. Yeah. I mean, you know, in, I'm no economic historian, but what they tell you is that as late as 1800, That's right. per capita productivity globally was roughly equal yeah. because everyone, except in Britain, everyone was basically either a semi-subsistence farmer 
or a craftsman using hand tools, mm, essentially, yeah. you know, yeah. this sort of stuff. So very little mechanical power and all that sort of stuff. And it's the fact that, that the Industrial Revolution generated this extraordinary explosion yeah. in per capita productivity in industrialised countries. So Britain, by, you know, 1810 or something like that, with a population of 20 million, was had a bigger GDP than China, then with a population of 300 million. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and now, of course, that's swing back the other way. Yeah. You know, China's economy overtakes America's to be the biggest economy in the world at the point at which China's per capita productivity becomes one quarter of America's. Yeah, that's right. But its population is four times as big. Yeah. You know, the arithmetic's not very sophisticated, yeah. but pretty telling. Yeah. And, you know, one of and that's why all this is inevitable. And that's why, well, I never use the word inevitable, but it's so much more likely than any of the other mm. scenarios mm. that it's not. It's hardly worth, from a policy point of view, worrying too much about, about the alternative. It's overwhelmingly the, the one, and also it's the one that stresses the system. Yeah. You know, if yeah. China does falter, if China stops growing at only 75% of American GDP, then there'll be all sorts of interesting possibilities. Mm. But the, the shift in the strategic order in Asia yeah. is, will, will, will stabilise. Yeah. Yeah. But as long as China keeps growing significantly faster than the United States, then the, then the pressure on the present strategic order will grow and grow and grow. And it really is you know, just a matter of at what point this balloon bursts. Mm. And, you know, maybe it can be deflated gently. What we should all hope is that it can be deflated gently. That is that the region, the, the regional order can be gradually shifted, peacefully shifted to something new which accommodates China's growing power. The downside, or the, the, the dangerous possibility, is that it grows to the point where it explodes mm. and we have a violent transformation. Um, and that's what you know, that might happen in the Senkakus, it might happen in something else. One doesn't want to overstress the 1914 metaphor here, but there are some parallels because what you see in the years from 1900 to 1914 was a series of crises in Europe in which Germany's pressure on the, on the existing order kept on repeating. The first Moroccan crisis, second Moroccan crisis, first Balkan War, second Balkan War. And by the time you get to Sarajevo, most people, apart from the fact they're all going off on their summer holidays, thought, oh, just another little thing in the Balkans. This one's not a worry, this, you know, or other Archduke. Nobody looking at that one thought, this is this the is one the that one. would blow the lid off. Yeah. So you see, we, we might we might sail through the Senkakus, yeah. it might all, might all die down, but the fundamental pressures on the, on, the, on the Asian order will persist. Something else will happen somewhere else. Because of the rise of China exactly. relative to the United I mean, it's States in, it's in the region. It's because of fundamental change in the balance. You know, it's as simple as this. Um, as power shifts, relationships change. Yeah. The moment the key US objective in Asia is to preserve its relationship with China and its role in Asia unchanged mm. as power shifts, that defies, if you like, the sort of Newtonian physics of, yeah. of politics and strategy. And, you know, you can't defy the critics would say you're a, um, you know, you're a squib um, because you're... Because I think we should compromise with China. You're talking about yeah. compromise yes, with China. Yes, that's right. And, and, that, that's and right. your critics say, well, you know, that, that will get you to where you don't want to yeah. be, which yeah. is a conflict yeah. or, or yeah. you know, and, domination. And, and I, 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 one has to be extremely careful about compromising with rising powers. That's one of the lessons you do learn from the 20th century. Um, uh, and so I think one needs to be very careful when one starts compromising with rising powers to define what you're not prepared to compromise on. Mm -hmm. And I think there are some things we should re rigorously refuse to compromise on, and one of them is the use or threat of force in changing international settings, which is why I think the Senkaku's thing is so worrying. Um, I think, but, but I think it's 
possible, far from inevitable, possible that we could say to China, look, you're not going to be strong enough to dominate the whole region. And I don't think it will be. It's going to be the world's biggest economy, probably. It's going to be an immensely powerful state, but it's not going to be strong enough to dominate Asia by itself if others try to resist it. And I think we need to say to the Chinese, look, guys, you're not going to be able to dominate this region. And if you try, you're going to run yourself into escalating strategic rivalry with some very strong and dangerous states, Japan, United States, India, mm. Russia, possibly. Um, so what you need to do is in your interest, your China's interest, to settle for the most you can get at relatively low cost. It's a classic policy choice. And I think that the, the balance point is a point at which China and the United States and the other great powers, we just look at the China and the United States for the time being, China and the United States accept or build a shared um, power structure in which they both have, roughly speaking, equal roles. Now, that means giving China a lot more power than it's had in the past. It means the United States accepting a much lower position than it's had in the past. But it means the United States continues to play a strong role in Asia, constrains China's power significantly. Um, uh, and it might just give the Chinese enough yeah. to satisfy them. They don't have to like it. Mm. All they have to do is to say, okay, on balance. They do a calculation. They do a calculation. This is optimum. Exactly. It's cost-benefit. mathematics or whatever. It's a perfectly straightforward economic mm. choice. That is, you know, the constrained. I'd, I'd, I'd like to go situation. skiing in Gestapo, but actually, mm. Mount Buller is cheaper. Yeah, you know? yeah, so, yeah. And the skiing's, you know, yeah. it's five times cheaper and the skiing's half as good. So yeah. I'll go okay. Mount Buller. Yeah. So, you know, China would like to, to dominate the region in a sort of Munro Doctrine kind of way, but if it's going to face escalating strategic rivalry with countries it can't beat, it makes sense for China to settle for relationships with equality. Yeah. But my point is, I don't think the Chinese will settle for less. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think the Chinese will be prepared to pay extremely high costs and run very big risks in order to get out of the position of subordination it feels it's in at the moment. Um, and that's, whereas a very common view amongst Americans, and I think a kind of assumption, an unexamined assumption in Australia, is that the Chinese in the end are going to settle for nothing. Yeah. No, they're going to settle for no fundamental change in the Asian order at all. And as I said before, I, I'm sure that's wrong. Mm. I'm so sure that's how, wrong. how would this desired... We, we did. Just wanted to... You've covered it to an extent, but the desired, you use the word dominance or, yes, or, yes. or at least influence. Yes. Or yes. How, what would it look like? Um, well, we, we, we don't know. Um, and that's partly because, although you can draw on the historical records, um, it's the best data set we've got. Uh, each circumstance is, is unique, if you know what I mean. But I, I, my, my starting point is that when I look at China as a revisionist power, power that wants to change the international system, um, I see it as quite modest in mm. its aspirations. You know, when we look at a dominant power, when people think about China's rising power and, and trying to learn the lessons from the past, we look at, look at Napoleonic France, we look at, uh, at Nazi Germany, Stalinist Russia, Maoist China, Japan, Imperial Japan, mm, yep. they're, they're our key models. Right. And each of those models were very radical. That is, each of them wanted to fundamentally change almost every feature of the international system. Yes. I mean, take, uh, take Stalinist Russia, for example, Stalinist Soviet Union. They wanted to change the whole, whole global economic structure. Yeah, I mean, they, fundamentally, they had a model of the economy. They wanted the whole show to be communist. They the whole show to be communist. This is extraordinarily radical. They wanted to fundamentally change the political structure in every country in the world. They wanted to yeah. build a particular, very, very specialised model of mm. political life. 
Uh, they wanted to change the ideological foundation. They yeah. wanted to change the religious foundation. Yeah. They wanted to change everything. Well, my 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 Catholic nuns in yeah, Baradine exactly, used to exactly. tell me what you know. These you know the Russians guys, are coming and those, they're those guys in the Kremlin. They're heathens. Want and, to close our yeah, churches? Yeah. That's now, when people and, and so when we think about a rising power, and when I say we, I don't just mean we Australians. I think the whole you know certainly the West when it thinks about a rising power, thinks about how to respond to China's rise, views it through a, a model which mm. is built around these th this series that we've had in this last couple of centuries of very radical revisionist powers. But when I look at China today, I see a country that is very happy with the present economic structure. <laughs> 10 percent per annum yeah. over 30 years. Who wouldn't be? Yeah. It's slowing a bit now to well, a yeah, minus, seven, oh, minus, minus 7 percent. But, you know, they don't, they don't want to change the economic model. Yeah. I think they're entirely uninterested in other countries' politics. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the Chinese Communist Party does not have a view as to how Australia should, should be governed. Yeah. It is completely uninterested in our in our religious life, our sport. social life, our sport. You know, they don't they, marry they just, Exactly, they don't care. So, you know, the, the key thing about the Chinese, most of what goes on in Asia at the moment, they're perfectly happy with. The only one thing about Asia they want to change, who's in charge. Now, that's itself pretty radical. Mm. You know, changing who's in charge is a very radical thing to do. But but it's still it's much more modest. But how does who's in charge get manifest? I mean, uh, when people wake up outside of China, outside of China, what um, it feel each like? morning, what's it feel yeah. like that China? Yes. Well, it's different now. China's well, if, in charge. If China, if China, well, it's a very it's a very important point. It might not be that different. Mm. It depends how the Chinese chose to use that power. And see, one of the questions for Australia is how bad would it be for us if China does end up as a dominant power? If you know, if the United States withdrew, mm. which is I don't, they, they could do. I don't predict it as an as a most likely outcome, but it's certainly a possibility we need to bear in mind. So if the United States withdrew, if the Japanese decided on balance that contesting China's primacy is more trouble than it's worth, and decided to kind of accept its, you know, I say that China becomes Japan comes a kind of Canada to China's American mm -hmm. group. You know what I mean? It's a big country. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. a very important country, but it's sort of accepts a position mm. of subordination to China. And I, I think it's very unlikely that Japan would do that, but they could. If India decides not to contest China's position either, maybe India looks west, west. rather than yeah. east. And, there's, you know, mm. Middle East is changing very fast. Sure. India is a big place. Uh, and so on. There are all sorts of different ways in which that could play out. In that case, we might end up with a region in which China is the Monroe Doctrine power. And we need to ask ourselves for Australia, what does that feel like? Well, I, I think it's risky because uh, once China was in that position, it might its ambitions might become bigger might than they are at the moment. Mm -hmm. When I look at China's ambitions today, you know they might they seem modest. Uh, once China actually got hold of the steering wheel, they might decide they wanted to do different things. But it's quite possible that that China might just leave us be. It might be a little bit like the United States. You know, if you're we're the Argentina in this model. You know, we're the country that's a long way to the south yeah. in, um, in the Monroe Doctrine model. So, you know, we, it, it, we, what would be the difference? Where our, our children would probably tidy up their Mandarin a bit. Mm. Um, they would go to study in Beijing instead of going to study uh, at Harvard. Um, but it, it might be a perfectly natural evolution, but, but it's risky. Yeah. And it's particularly risky, of course, if Japan and India and so on don't decide to accept yes. Chinese primacy. Yeah. And that, that seems to me to be the more likely outcome. And that's why I think trying to negotiate a power sharing structure 
in which the Japanese and the Indians and the Americans all play a role along with China, but which gives China a position of yeah. equality in that system, is is the safer yeah, yeah. is the safer bet. And and you seems to me you're ruling out or or regarding as negligible the possibility that China would act militarily to achieve this domination in the region. Uh, well, it's not China's not going to be strong. Well, China's not that going to be is not going to go. It's not, going to do the, the it's not going to do the Nazi Germany mm. thing. Look, I think that's... I, I see no evidence of that in China. Moreover, it's not to say it couldn't happen, but, you know, this is not Nazi Germany. Mm. You know, and one of the reasons for that is because China does have a huge stake in stability. Yeah. Because the economy is working so well for it, yeah, yeah. not just its own economy, mm. the regional economy is working so well for it. China has a strong stake in stability. It also has a stake in asserting leadership. And it's, it's got to manage the tension between those yeah. two. But it doesn't feel the tension between those two is as strong as others might because it thinks it can get there peacefully. But the, to which, to which, the, the extent to which China could use armed force if it wanted to depends a lot on the environment you're talking about. On the continent of Asia, in relation to China's smaller neighbours, China always has military options mm. because of its sheer scale. If you're Vietnam or Laos or Burma, or Mongolia, or Korea, then living next door to China is, uh, is to live under China's shadow. But as soon as you get offshore, water is a great barrier. Mm. And as soon as you get offshore, the stakes change. China has done a great deal over the last few decades to improve its capacity to stop other people projecting power by sea against it. But it has done almost nothing to build its capacity to project power by sea against others. Yeah. So if you're Japan, you can defend yourself against China very easily. Um, the question about nuclear weapons is mm. to one side, but you know we can come back to that. But if you're Japan, you can defend yourself against China very easily because it's very easy to sink Chinese ships. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a ring of us, Japan, Philippines, Indonesia, Australia, and oddly enough, India. Because the Himalayas means that India, yeah. it, 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 the Himalayas is so hard to drive across that it functions like a significant body of water yeah. as a barrier to military operations. And so the, the India and China really relate to one another primarily as maritime powers. Yeah. And so we offshore powers, you know, around mm. that ring like that, are actually relatively secure from China. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why it's so hard for China, as I say, to dominate the region. Um, because if... Because so much of Asia's power is offshore. Yeah. One of the differences between Asia and Europe is Europe, that in yeah, Europe, yeah. the only power that's offshore is Britain, mm. whereas, in, whereas in Asia, Japan, Philippines, Indonesia, mm. Australia, India, mm. New Zealand, uh, are all offshore. Yeah. And in, in aggregate, it's a pretty big chunk, particularly with India, yeah. is a very big chunk of the region's, of the region's weight. Yeah, I understand. Um, any role for Australia in all of this? I mean, sometimes we yeah. get a bit, um, yeah. you know, inflated with our view as to what role we can play between the United States and China. But is there any role? Sometimes we do and sometimes we understate it. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we have no role as a mediator. Yeah. Is we have no role to get between the yeah. US and China and sort yeah. of talk Come to on them like this. <laughs> That is something in which, you know, the Chinese and the Americans can talk perfectly well to one yeah. another, and they do. But we do have an interest in the kind of relationship they build. And we do have, or we should have, influence on both of them. And in particular, we should have influence in Washington. I mean, we keep on talking about this alliance. 
and it's for real. Mm. Australia actually is a, has a significant voice in Washington on those things if we choose to use it. Um, and, you know, if, if ever anyone in Australia is in any doubt about whether Australia matters to America when America thinks about China, they just have to remember that Barack Obama has given the most important speech that any American president has given about China since 1972 in Canberra. I mean, the, the Barack Obama's speech to the Australian Parliament, November 19, 2011, is seen by the United States, seen by the, by the Obama administration as the key statement on US role in Asia. And, and a very credible argument, it's the most critical speech on Asian policy since Nixon went to China. Why did he give it here? Because we're, because Australia actually does sit in a pretty important place here, mm -hmm. where he couldn't have given that speech in Japan. Yeah. Because the Japan-US relationship is so complex, and because the Japan-US-China relationship is so complex. complex. Yeah. We have a bit of room to manoeuvre. And I think, I'd turn the coin over. The evolution of the US-China relationship is the single most critical determinant of Australia's international environment over the next few decades. If it goes well, this country's got a good future. If it goes badly, we're screwed. So we as a national priority should absolutely be aiming to do whatever we can to influence both the US and China. Yeah. To build that relationship in a way that works for us. And we shouldn't be, and even if we only have a 5% chance yeah. of making a difference, yeah. Why wouldn't we try? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what, what, what do we say to our grandchildren? Mm. If 35 years from now, the region has been ripped apart by a nuclear war between the United States and China, and they ask us, what did you, what did, what did you guys do to stop that mm. happening? I mean, there it was. Look at what you were all saying in 2011, 2012, 2013 about this wonderful new age. It all fell apart in 2014, to be pessimistic. What did you do mm. to stop it? Mm, yeah. And if we say, oh, well, we're sure the Americans really wanted to hear from us. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I don't know if there's a parallel here, but as trade minister, it was fascinating. I, I had the assumption that Australia was a significant but not a yeah, big yeah, influence yeah, in, yeah. you know, international trade negotiations. But so many countries came to us oh, to ask yeah. what we thought. That's, that's right. And yeah. Interestingly, China yeah. would do that, yeah. and the US yes. would do that, yeah. Yeah. and there was a little bit of them asking what yeah. we thought the they others do. thought. No, look, that's and exactly it right. It was sort of more of our, uh, you know, position of um, credibility and, and right. acting in good faith yeah. that, yeah. that yeah. was no, valuable. Look, valuable. That's, that's exactly right, but also, um, you know, your your influence in these situations depends a great deal on the quality of your ideas. Yeah. And if you've got a good idea... You don't have to be big. You don't have to be big. I mean, Lee Kuan Yew is, a, is, is mm. one of the best demonstrations of this. But it's also true of us. I mean, you know, we have had some very big wins on the trade front. Ideas like the Cairns Group, mm. ideas like APEC, worked because they were good ideas. Good ideas. Now, you also have to have the trade craft. You have to take the idea and then mm. you have to turn it into yeah. a real diplomacy. Yeah. And, you know, Australian trade diplomacy, I think, over the years has been extremely good. Mm. Um, but first of all, you've got to have the idea. Yeah. And, uh, and one of the things is that although when we look at Beijing and when we look at Washington, we see these immense sort of monoliths. In fact, both of these, both of them are quite open towns. They're open markets for ideas. Yeah. Washington, of course, obviously and especially, but I think Australians do underestimate what an open city Washington is. You go to Washington with an idea. To Washington. To Washington. Yeah. And they will listen yeah. to you if it's a good idea. Yeah. Now, they won't necessarily agree with you. Mm. They might give you a hard time. But, I mean, I've been arguing a, a very 
to Americans counterintuitive idea on yeah. the future of the US-China relationship. And I, you know, my sort of shorthand for my reception is, you, I've read your book, completely disagree. We must go to lunch and talk about it. <laughs> and, and it really has been the yeah. experience. But, but also in Beijing, it's a more open, it's a, it, Beijing is a town that's full of ideas. There's a lot of debate that goes on there. There are limits around that debate. Mm. But you, can you debate the US-China relationship in China? Absolutely. Yeah. And are they interested in Australian views? You mm. bet they are. And so, you know, I think it's a major issue for Australia. We have to work out in our own minds where we want the US-China relationship, what evolution yeah. the US-China relationship works best for us and do whatever we can to help shape it in that direction. And, of course, we're not alone because everybody else in Asia is facing the same problem. Yeah. And everybody else in Asia ends up having the same interests that we do. Look, none of us want to live under China's shadow. So we all want America to stay engaged. None of us want to live with US-China strategic competition. Mm -hmm. So we all want the United States to stay engaged in a way that China's prepared to accept. So we all want the United States and China to sit down and negotiate yeah. some sort of power-sharing deal. And, you know, I, I think one of the opportunities for Australia is not just to go to Washington and Beijing, but to go to Singapore and mm -hmm. Jakarta and Seoul yeah. and Bangkok and yeah, say, yeah. and Delhi, and say, and maybe, although this is a more complicated case, Tokyo, and say, guys, mm -hmm. we all need to, and for that matter, to Europe. Yeah. I mean, yeah, every, the yeah. Europeans have a huge stake in yeah, this. And yeah. so, look, we all need to be going to the United States and saying, think about your relationship with China this way. Yeah. And go to China yeah. about, think about your relationship with the United States that way. Well, we better wind up, but, yeah. um, but picking up that point, there is evidence that the ASEANs as a group yes. are really, I mean, they've been together for a long yes. time, but yeah. again, in the trade area, they came yeah. up with this regional comprehensive yes. economic partnership, yes. and yeah. it was the ASEANs who came up with yeah. that idea. Yes. Yeah. The US has assumed that it's a China yeah. idea, yeah. and I said, no, actually, yeah. it's an ASEAN idea, and, yeah. and um, the reason I raise that is that it may be possible that we can yeah. deal with the ASEANs as a group. Yes. I don't know in your yes. field. I do. Yes. I do think it is quite possible I, I, in the commercial. In, in the field. Yes. Look, I think I think that's right. But I think I think in the strategic and political field, that's becoming harder. It's not a, com a coincidence that ASEAN's history has coincided with this era of uncontested primacy. Mm. Um, that, that ASEAN has worked as an association of middle and small states because the great powers have agreed to let it work by keeping their hands off it. Yeah. Now, as soon as the great powers start to become rivals again, mm. one of the ways that rivalry is expressed is by their attempts to pick the ASEANs off. Apart and, and get them and, to choose. And, and both sides have done that. The United mm. States, I think, has quite clearly sought to exploit China's admittedly rather ham-fisted diplomacy in the South China Sea to draw the Southeast Asians closer to them. Right. And the Chinese have sought to use both threats and uh, blandishments to draw Southeast Asians back. And the, and the outcome was right there in Phnom Penh last year. And this is the great power starting to pull ASEAN mm. apart. And, of course... Now that ASEAN is big, now that ASEAN stretches from Vietnam and Laos at one end down to Indonesia at the other, other. Um, these and guys across have, and across to Myanmar. But but the, but the the really big division in ASEAN is between the continentals and the maritimes. But if you're Indonesia, you've got all sorts of issues about your future relationship with China, but they're very different from Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. Because the Vietnamese just live with. They've got several millennia of experience of doing this, but in the end, 
there are very clear limits to what Vietnam, nobody can help Vietnam manage their relationship with mm. China. The idea that the United States can help Vietnam mm. manage China is a complete myth. Mm. We've been there before. Yeah, yeah. You know, it doesn't work. Mm. This is the mainland of Asia. Yeah. Um, so that it's not to say the Vietnamese now have to do whatever China says. They certainly demonstrated that in 1978. But they but they have to always take China into account in a way that Indonesia doesn't mm. to nearly the same degree because it's just a lot further away, further away. and there's some water in between. Yeah. So I think um, I think the more the region becomes shaped by rivalry between the United States and China, the less effective ASEAN will As be in this field. Be, yeah, I um, understand. Um, I'd love to talk to you in the future sometime about Indonesia. Yes, that's a um, whole, but it's a whole added drama. In the yeah, but I think we really should um, draw yeah, this yeah, MO yeah, yeah. forum episode to a close well, with me asking you if there's one thing that you uh, could change yeah. and look your grandchildren in the eye, yep. the ones yep. you described yep. a little earlier, yep. what would it be? Uh, very important question, very simple answer. Australia needs to recognise that uh, China's rise fundamentally changes our strategic circumstances and needs to be much more active than we've been so far in trying to shape how those strategic circumstances change. And I think the key way to do that is to start representing to Washington and Beijing the kind of strategic relationship they should have. This is the most important diplomatic challenge Australia has ever faced. That sounds like an exaggeration. It's not. And you think we can and play we a role? And we can play a role. Or sounds at least like you think we why, must play a why, role. Why shouldn't we give it a try? Yeah. I mean, I'd rather say to my grandchildren, we tried and failed. And they said, than go away. <laughs> than, than, than to say, we didn't think it was worth a try. Yeah. I mean, how weak is that? Yeah. Hugh White, Professor, my pleasure. Australian National University, thank you very much for appearing. My great, on my great pleasure. Thank you.